This is the second message in a four-week series on the topic of following Christ's lead. Last week we talked about serving others as we have been served by Jesus Christ. This morning's focus, actually the bulletin, I had a little miscommunication. It's, uh, this morning's focus is about forgiving. Uh, forgiving others as God in Christ has forgiven you. Now, many of you were here when I preached on this exact same topic and the same key passage uh, last April. That message is available on our website, and I'm going to refer you back to it because I, I'm not going to repeat everything that I said in that one. That would, that would uh, I think, bore some of you. My intention this morning is to consider the same critically important biblical exhortation to forgive others as God in Christ has forgiven us, but to do it from a slightly different angle. In fact, we're going to go in the second half of this message and we're going to look back at the Old Testament and we're going to see what the basis and foundation of forgiveness was and always has been uh, going back to the, to the beginning of God's revelation to us. I also want to cover, though, a couple of... Uh, questions or issues I perhaps didn't address adequately in the previous iteration of this message. Uh, And I want to start by recapping some of the most critical points from that first study. These are transforming truths. These are the kinds of things that, that truly do change our relationships radically. These are the things that turn marriages from shipwrecks to blessings. These are the things that turn relationships between parents and children to blessings and children and parents. Uh, Brothers and sisters, friends, co-workers, this stuff is as relevant as it gets. And forgiveness is one of the most foundational aspects of God's character. It is one of the most fundamental aspects of being a Christian and living the Christian life. So let's look at a few things that we talked about before. Now, first, forgiveness does not mean that sin has no consequence. The passage that A.J. just read comes immediately after the passage that we call the church discipline passage in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. Jesus' teaching about our responsibility to rebuke and, if necessary, to discipline a brother in Christ for persistent sin immediately precedes this 70 times 7 passage. So we should not, we should not assume that forgiveness means sin does not have a consequence and that we're not responsible to deal with sin in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. But forgiveness does mean that we are to reckon or account the other person's sin to be paid in full by Jesus Christ, when we're talking about a brother or sister in Christ. And so we cease to be concerned with the impact of that sin on us, trusting God entirely with our own well-being. Now, again, the development of these ideas goes back to the previous message. I don't want to reiterate all of it, but I want to make sure we see some of the key things that came from that discussion. And that second one is exceedingly important. We're going to talk more in the fourth message about the, 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 the centrality of trusting the Father as Jesus trusted the Father for all of the things that we're talking about these four weeks. 
Third, we, we become concerned only with the impact of the sin on the sinner and on the reputation of Jesus Christ. It's no longer about us. In fact, our, the way that we address sin in a brother or sister in Christ at its very heart is an act of love. It's never an act of retribution. It's never uh, done out of righteous indignation. We don't have very much of that. It's done out of love. Uh, an amazing example of this, I think possibly the best biblical example apart from Jesus Christ himself, is Joseph in Genesis chapter 45 and Genesis 50. And I urge you to go back and look at those passages if you're not familiar with that story. We're going to talk about it a little bit at the end of this message. All right. The parable, 70 times 7, the unforgiving servant. This powerful passage begins as a continuation of the passage about disciplining a brother who persists in sin. Peter asked Jesus, okay, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven times? And Jesus says, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now, when we talked about this before, I I developed the idea that Jesus didn't pull the 70 times 7 out of thin air. There was something behind that math. And I believe that he was referring to, he was alluding to something in the Old Testament that Peter was very familiar with, Peter and the other disciples. Notably, the duration of Judah's exile to Babylon, 70 years, which was based on the number of, se- of sabbatical years that they had neglected, 70 times Every seventh year, they had failed to observe the, the, the sabbatical year, to cease from labor and to, to trust God. And yet God, had he judged them, but he also forgave them, and he promises to restore them. Now, I won't uh, take time this morning to review the parable, but again, the 70 times 7 idea means that we don't stop forgiving at 490. We always forgive. And I'm going to assume that you, that you were listening as A.J. read the parable. It's not a complicated story, but it is a powerful one. But there are a couple of lessons I want to make sure that we kind of rehash a little bit. First, the, the contrast between the two debts. The chief steward owed 10,000 talents to the king. And the lesser steward owed 100 denarii to the chief steward. How much is that? Well, back in April when I did this this conversion, silver at a troy ounce was 17 bucks. Now uh, it's $23, uh, thanks to the rapid appreciation of precious metals over the last uh, months. If you if you carry out the calculation, what you end up with is that 10,000 talents of silver by the valuation back then would have been about 766,000 years wages. The point is not the number. The point is that it was an amount of money that the chief steward could never possibly repay. And guess what? That servant, that chief steward, represents all of us in the parable. Jesus was intentionally painting a picture of the infinite, impossible debt that we all owe to God because of our sin. 
And if you don't get that point, you'll miss the heart of, of the parable. And the lesser steward owed to the chief steward a hundred denarii. How much is that? Well, a denarius was one day's wage. Somewhat less than a dollar by today's valuation, still. So, just over three months' wages. Now, as I pointed out before, there are likely some in this room who owe somebody three months' wages. In fact, if you include mortgages, I think it's probably most of us. But I also think it's safe to say that there's nobody in this audience who owes any human being 750,000 years' wages. If you do, you got a little problem. So what is the point of this absurd contrast that Jesus painted? Well, the point is, whatever a person owes to you amounts to nothing, nothing compared with what you owe to God. And if you're thinking about whether you should forgive somebody, this principle is absolutely central to that question. Because the answer is always the same. God has already forgiven your infinite debt to Him if you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. Your King, your Master, Jesus Christ, paid your debt in full at the price of His own life's blood. So for any of us to forgive a debt owed to us by another human being because of a sin or wrongdoing committed against us by that person is for us to count as nothing the sacrifice of Jesus Christ in our place. And God does not take that lightly. This is so fundamental to the Christian life that there is no possible way to overstate it. It is sheer arrogance It is the foolishness of the highest order for us ever to withhold forgiveness from a fellow servant of God because we all owe infinitely more to God than will ever be owed to us by any other person, no matter how grievous their sin against us. So our assignment from God is very straightforward. Forgive as you have been forgiven by God. Paul develops, actually very directly presents that standard in a couple of passages. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32, he says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. How much? All. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Again in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, he says, And so as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Would you say that's a clear assignment? Would you say there's any ambiguity in that assignment? No. None. None at all. Now, I'll back up back to that other slide. We are called to forgive 
others just as God has forgiven us. There's no room for, yeah, but. Yeah, but God, you don't understand this situation. You don't know my husband. You don't know my wife. You don't know my kid. There's no place for yeah, buts in this assignment. Every single time someone sins against you, your instructions are clear. A second critical point from our earlier study is that forgiveness must not wait for proof of repentance. This is one that gives a lot of Christians heartburn. They think that that the only time we need to forgive someone is not only if they earnestly repent, but if they prove their repentance. That is not what Christ presents, and it's not what the Bible presents at any point. In Luke chapter 17, verses 3 and 4, we see another statement from our Lord, and He says, Be on guard. This is a warning. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day, saying, I repent, forgive him. Now, at first glance, you look at that and you say, okay, well, that that puts repentance before forgiveness. But look again. What would your conclusion be about the genuineness of a brother's declaration of repentance if he came back and sinned against you seven times in one day? You see, the proof's not in the saying. But the command is the same, even though the the sin is repeated over and over and over. Jesus' command is always the same. Forgive as you have been forgiven. And again, I say these two verses are part of a warning. If you look back to the two verses that preceded it, you see that Jesus is telling his disciples not to do anything that causes one of God's children to stumble. And then he says, be on your guard, forgive. The point, very simple, never, never, never withhold forgiveness. And be ready to declare your forgiveness to the one who has sinned against you, no matter how many times he or she comes back. Now, I said before, that if God had waited until you and I put our sin behind us before He forgave us, we would all be everlasting toast. There is nobody in this room and there is nobody on this earth who is not still committing some some sin that He's been committing for years. Whether it's anxiety or pride or lust or whatever. If God's forgiveness toward us were based on proof that we would not repeat the sin we would all be lost. And God's forgiveness is the model for our forgiveness of others. Now, there's one other point that I want to clarify uh, from the last go-around, and it has to do with Jesus' warning at the end of the parable of the unforgiving steward. At the end of the parable, Jesus speaks about this king, and he says, when the king learned that his chief steward had been merciless and unforgiving toward the lesser steward, the king summoned the chief servant and said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all the debt that you owed me because you entreated me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave even as I had mercy on you? And his lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers, 
until he should repay all that was owed him. Then Jesus said to the other disciples, So shall my heavenly Father do also to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Similarly, in Matthew chapter 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, right after the Lord's Prayer, what is popularly called the Lord's Prayer, it's the disciples' prayer, Jesus said, For if you forgive men of their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Now, after I preached the message on forgiving as we have been forgiven last April, one dear brother whom I deeply respect came to me and told me that I had not adequately addressed those warnings. That if we do not forgive, we will not be forgiven. So I want to do my best this morning to clarify how I understand Jesus' warning to the disciples regarding the severe consequence of failure to forgive. First, I will say that we will not succeed in forgiving others according to God's standard because God's one and only standard is himself. And yet that is exactly what our assignment from God is, to forgive others as he has forgiven us in Christ. You see, we're still engaged in a daily battle between the new man, our true identity in Christ, and our old nature, the flesh. And that struggle is going to continue until the day that we are glorified and sin is finally put away from us, the very presence of sin. We've already been freed as believers from the penalty of our sin and from the the power of our sin. We're We're not slaves anymore. But one day we'll be freed from the very presence of our sin. In practice, we continually fall short of our calling even though we are fully accountable to that calling. Our failures do not change God's standard, and they do not change God's assignment. His standard is absolute. At face value, that leaves us with what appears to be an impossible dilemma. But that dilemma has been fully resolved in Christ. I see this as critically important, and it applies to everything that we're talking about in these four messages. God's only standard is himself. God's standard of forgiveness is his own forgiveness toward us. That's an absolute forgiveness purchased at the, at the price of his son's own blood. God's standard of servanthood is Christ's own service toward us which involved him setting aside his glory, becoming a man, and dying on a cross in our place. God's standard of love, which we'll talk about next week, is his love. It's an absolute and incomparable love. God nowhere, please hear me, God nowhere says that he is impressed with our approximations of the righteousness of Christ. He is impressed only with the righteousness of Christ. Yeah, let me go to that one. Sorry, I'm bouncing through the slides here. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, in the passage immediately before Jesus gives the statement about that the Father will not forgive you unless you forgive, he tells the crowd 
in verse 20, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not see the kingdom of God. And the question that immediately follows from that unsettling statement is, okay, Lord, then what kind of righteousness will allow me to see the kingdom of God? What kind of righteousness does meet God's standard? Jesus answers that question in the rest of Matthew 5 by drawing an uncompromising picture of what true righteousness is. He says, listen up, Jesus says if you so much as call your brother a fool, you're a murderer. And your sin is worthy of hell. He says it in no uncertain terms. He says, if you look upon a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery with her already in your heart. He makes it clear that if you're unwilling to pluck out your eye when it causes you to sin, then you're fit only for hell. He doesn't mince words. And when he finishes his statement about the kind of righteousness that meets God's standard, he finishes it by saying, therefore, you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. It's funny, I heard a seminary prof say that, yeah, but the word can mean mature. And I said, okay, then I only have to be as mature as God. Jesus' words leave every mouth closed and every man helplessly accountable to God. Throughout all of his earthly teaching, Jesus goes to great lengths to show without any ambiguity or equivocation that every last one of us is utterly and desperately in need of a Savior to pay the debt that we owe to God because of our helplessness to take even one step toward His holiness. In His conclusion from the parable of the unforgiving steward, when Jesus said to Peter and the other disciples that if they failed to forgive their brother from the heart, God will call in their debt to Him and, and they will have to pay it in full. When he said that, his point was the same, I believe, as when he said, if you call your brother a fool, you're a murderer. Or if you lust after a woman, you're an adulterer. You see, Jesus was still showing the multitudes and the disciples why he had to go to the cross. The Jews and even the disciples at this point were still clinging to the notion that the bar by which we are measured God's standard for determining men's fitness to stand in His presence was down here somewhere where we could reach it if we tried hard enough. Even the disciples failed to truly understand why Jesus had to go to the cross until after He had gone to the cross and they saw the resurrected Christ. That's why Peter, in the same chapter in which he says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, just a few verses later, says to Jesus, you can't go to the cross. You can't die. Heaven forbid that you should die. He didn't get it yet. Jesus said to him on that occasion, get thee behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You see, during his earthly ministry, Jesus repeatedly made it crystal clear that the bar by which we are measured in the eyes of God is and has always been way up there where we can't even see it. Because God's only standard is His own character. The only righteousness that will allow us to see the kingdom of God is God's righteousness. 
The reason Jesus could say that he was the fulfillment of the law, which he said in Matthew 5, was because the purpose of the law has always been to reveal the perfection of God's character to men so that men would realize we are dead unless God does for us what we can never do for ourselves. Unless God provides the perfect sacrifice to pay for our sin and gives us his righteousness, we're lost. Will God ever call in your debt to him because you fail to perfectly meet his standard of forgiving others as he has forgiven you? If you are his child by faith in Jesus Christ, he already has. He has already called in your debt. If we miss this, we miss something foundationally important. He called in your debt and he paid it. The wrath that you deserved was poured out in full measure against God's own Son on your behalf. He became a curse for you so that you would inherit a blessing for all eternity. The point of the passage about the unmerciful servant is that we are called to forgive as we have been forgiven by God and never to insult Christ by thinking any man has a debt to us greater than our debt to God. And I believe the warning at the end of the parable makes it clear that if it were not for his atoning sacrifice for you and for me, every failure to forgive, every lapse, every delay in forgiving would condemn us forever. That's precisely why it's so fundamental to the Christian life that we forgive. As his redeemed children, the only basis on which we who continue to struggle with sin are able to do anything that qualifies as righteousness in his eyes is because Christ is our righteousness. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is to me just an amazing passage. This is after Paul talks about God, you know, basically proving his foolishness the things of the world and choosing the foolish things of God to shame the wise. And then he says, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us, he became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. He is our righteousness. The only way I can forgive as I've been forgiven is because the one who forgave me of all my sin abides in me and lives through me. We talked about this verse last week. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. No matter how much my old sin nature muddies the waters, everything that Jesus does in me and through me is perfect and pleasing to God. He is the only life I have. He is the only righteousness I have. And that is all I need to know. Now I want to spend the remainder of our time this morning looking at a few passages from the Old Testament. And I want to challenge you as we look at these passages on the screen to think about the basis of God's forgiveness because it's always been the same. 
There's a very consistent pattern in these passages. Now, before we look at the passages that speak of God's forgiveness toward his covenant people, I should point out that there are a number of passages in which God says he is withholding forgiveness from his covenant people, Israel and Judah, and in fact, making them the objects of his wrath. In those cases, the wrath that befalls his people is without exception exceedingly painful and fierce. But it is a temporal wrath. That means it is limited in time and specific as to expression. For example, in Jeremiah 18, the prophet cries out to God to judge Judah for rejecting God's call to repentance through him and for, in fact, seeking to kill God's messenger, Jeremiah. Jeremiah says, Thou, O Lord, knowest all their deadly designs against me. Do not forgive their iniquity or blot out their sin from thy sight, but may they be overthrown before thee. Deal with them in the time of thine anger. And God did indeed deal with Judah. The very next chapter in Jeremiah, chapter 19, details God's intention to bring upon his own people all of the curses that have been laid out almost a thousand years earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and 29. Those curses were in fact fulfilled in fine and painful detail during the 18-month siege of Jerusalem at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians and the Chaldean mercenaries in 587 to 586 B.C. But it is critical to understand that those curses and judgments were temporal, not eternal. And the purpose of those judgments was explicitly declared by God not to be to destroy Israel and Judah, but to humble them so that they would be turned back to their God, just as he had said would be the case almost a thousand years earlier in Deuteronomy 30. Let me tell you, Deuteronomy 28 through 30 is a, is a, a foundational passage for understanding a whole bunch of stuff that God does and a whole bunch of what's going on in the, in the, the, the chronology of the kings and in the prophets. Isaiah 28 speaks of God's judgment against both Israel and Judah as, as an overwhelming scourge and a sheer terror that would pass through their midst. But look at how Isaiah describes God's own perspective regarding these fierce acts of judgment. He says, For the Lord, Yahweh, will rise up at Mount Perizim. He will be stirred up as in the valley of Gibeon to do his task, his strange task, and to do his work. His alien work. I'm going to say something that I've come to believe very firmly from Scripture. Judgment is not God's delight. It is His strange task. He calls it His alien work. By His own declaration concerning Himself after Israel had forsaken Him by making and worshiping a golden calf while Moses was up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, God declared to Moses after that incident, God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. He also said He will not leave sin unpunished. He will judge every iniquity. But judgment is not His delight. Now I want to demonstrate this further. 
In Lamentations chapter 3, Jeremiah describes the aftermath of that same siege of Jerusalem, which is is described in Scripture as the harshest, harshest judgment that had ever befallen man up to that time. A judgment in which men desperately sought for death but could not die. I don't know what that was like. But look at what Jeremiah says in the aftermath of that terrible judgment. He says, Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. And then he turns and he says, This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. Yahweh's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. For His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is Thy faithfulness. Yahweh is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in Him. Just a few verses later, he says, For the Lord will not reject forever. For if He causes grief, then He will have compassion. According to His abundant loving kindness, for He does not afflict from His heart. That's the literal translation of the Hebrew. He does not afflict from his heart or grieve the sons of men. If God does not execute judgment from his heart, then what does he do from his heart? Well, in Jeremiah 32, God speaks of that same act of judgment, the siege of Jerusalem. And at the end of that chapter, he turns as always to God's promise of restoration the promise of the new covenant, which would be fulfilled in Messiah. God says, And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. And I will rejoice over them to do them good. And I will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my life. You want to know what God does from the heart? He redeems. He restores. He saves. He forgives. He shows mercy. He shows grace. He shows kindness. He honors His covenant promises. Harsh judgment is God's strange work. It is the necessary outworking of His holiness in the face of our desperate wickedness. But God's delight, that which He by His own declaration does with all His heart and with all His life, is to destroy the curse and the destructive impact of the curse, to turn the hearts of men and to pour out upon us His grace, compassion, and mercy. That is why He sent His one and only Son, to become a curse in our place. You see, Jesus Christ fulfills the entire character of God. As we look through the, these remaining verses, I've underlined portions of the text. The portions that are underlined I see as the basis of God's forgiveness. And I'm going to ask you to look for a pattern. Psalm 103. See, I'm not switching. All right. 
Kevin, if you're... Okay, thank you. I may have to flag you to do it from here. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Joe went to this passage this morning. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of His benefits. By the way, those first two statements are parallel. God's benefits are a manifestation of God's name. What is God's name? What does it mean to talk about the name of God? It means His character. It means who He is. He pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. I love this passage. Next one, Kevin. Then he goes a little further. He says, The Lord Yahweh is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His loving kindness toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so Yahweh has compassion on those who fear Him. He Himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. The basis is the the, the underlying part. Who God is. He's compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. By the way, David is looking back at God's statement about himself in Exodus chapter 34 here. It's word for word. The outcome of God's character is all the other red stuff up there, and, and then some. Now, after David committed the sin of adultery with Bathsheba and followed it up with the premeditated murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, in an effort to cover his tracks, God sent the prophet Nathan to shine the light of truth on on David's grievous sin. And God took the life of David's child as that child was being born. That event was the setting for David's passionate cry to God for forgiveness and cleansing that's recorded in Psalm 51. Be gracious to me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the greatness of thy compassion, blot out my transgressions. And then all of the outcome of that. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Look at the last part. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. David's appeal is based on the character of God. David knew that he had no basis in himself for appealing to God for cleansing at that point or for forgiveness. And note that the cleansing for which he cries out to God is not a partial cleansing. He says, wash me thoroughly from my sin. And then he says, if you wash me, Lord, I'll be whiter than snow. David understood the nature of God's forgiveness. Go to Jeremiah 31. I've actually lost it down here, Kevin. Verses 18 to 20. 
Yahweh speaking. He says, I have surely heard Ephraim grieving. Ephraim represents the northern tribes, Israel. He says, Thou hast chastised me, and I was chastised like an untrained calf. And then there's this amazing statement. God, you turn me, and I will be turned. For thou art the Lord my God. That's the literal translation of the Hebrew. Surely after I was turned, I repented. So what came first? God turns the hearts of his people. God is always the initiator. We have nothing unless God reaches out to us and applies to us forgiveness. And of course, forgiveness is always in every age based on the blood of Christ. That's a timeless event that occurred in time. Turn me and I will be turned, for thou art the Lord my God. And he says, so he says, Surely after I was turned, I repented. And after I was instructed, I smote on my thigh. I was ashamed. I was humiliated because I bore the reproach of my youth. But then look at what God says about Ephraim. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a delightful child? Indeed, as often as I have spoken against him, I certainly still remember him. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. There's the heart of God. I will surely have mercy on him. God's mercy is a certainty for those who are his chosen, his people. Jeremiah 31, verses 33 to 34. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh, and then another string of I wills. I will put my law within them and on their heart. I will write it. I will be their God and they will be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. What is the basis of God's forgiveness? It's God. It's who He is. He decreed from before the foundations of the earth to create a people for His own possession, and He secured their forgiveness without us doing anything. The promises of God are unconditional. They are founded solely on the character of God, never, never in any age on the worthiness of men. Psalm 25, verses 6 to 18 And this is the first half of it. David says, Remember, O Lord, thy compassion and thy loving kindness, for they have been from of old. I love that. They have been from of old. See, God's compassion has been around for a long time. It's part of His character. It's been around forever. Thy loving kindness. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to thy loving kindness, remember thou me for thy goodness sake, O Lord. What's the basis? It's God. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. A little further down, go to the, that next one. Uh, for thy name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. See, all, all I have to contribute is my sin. Everything else depends on the name of the Lord. 
And then down at the end of the passage, he talks about, he says, Turn to me and be gracious, for I am lonely and afflicted. Look upon my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. He's got nothing to offer to God. Lastly, Psalm 79.9. Help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of thy name. And deliver us and forgive us our sins for thy name's sake. God's forgiveness, again, is always founded on who he is. And therefore, our forgiveness of others is always founded on who he is, on the character of God. We forgive others because he forgave us in Christ, because that's God's character. As we draw to a close, I want to go back to the first book of the Pentateuch, to Joseph's words to his brothers. I don't have time to play out the story that leads to these words. So if you don't know the story, I'll leave it to you to read Genesis 37 through 50. It will be well worth your time. Genesis 50, verses 15 to 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph should bear a grudge against us and pay us back in full for the whole the wrong that we did to him? That was a very substantial wrong, by the way. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father charged before he died, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. It's an understatement. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of, of God, of the God of your father. And Joseph's reaction, he wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? May God humble us to the core of our being if we don't see the relevance of that question to every case in which we have been wronged by another person. Forgiveness is so essential, so fundamental to the character of God that for us to fail to forgive is a denial of who He is. And it is usurping His place. Who are we to fail to forgive? when we have been forgiven so much by our God. I love love what uh, Paul says about the love of God at the end of Romans chapter 8. He said, He did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all. How, how, How will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Then he says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. His answer isn't what you'd expect. God is the one who has a charge against us. And he's the one who justified us. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. He's the judge. And we deserve his judgment. But he died for us. And even today, he intercedes for us.
So who shall separate us then from the love of Christ? And then you look at the list and you come up with the answer. Nothing. No one. For us who know what we have been forgiven, even even if we just have a glimpse of it, for us who know the God of all mercy, forgiveness toward our fellow servants should be as much a part of our nature as breathing. Loving Father, I thank You for the power of Your words. I thank You for the uncompromising standard that You set before us. And I thank You, Father, that the one and only way that we can ever meet Your standard of righteousness is because Christ is our righteousness. I thank You that You saw fit to take us who were lost and dead and helpless enemies of God and to put the shame and the guilt of our sin on Jesus Christ the perfect sacrifice. The one who paid that debt in full so that we can stand spotless and blameless in Your sight forever. Father, teach us what this means. Burn this into our hearts. Help us to understand, Lord, when any wrong is done to us by another person that the only possible response is for us to forgive as we have been forgiven. I ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.